Pulse Audio Podcast Network. Welcome to Whining About Herstory, every Herstory fan's favorite podcast where women from history you may not have heard of. I'm Kelly. I'm Emily. And thank you so much for tuning in today. Yeah, we're excited to have you here on this gorgeous, gorgeous day. This gorgeous, humid, 90-degree day in good old Minnesota. Heck yeah. I don't know how anyone on the West Coast or down South are dealing with it because... I mean, down South is more of like a dry heat in some (laughs) parts. I know that doesn't necessarily make it better, but as someone who has like curly hair, this humidity is killing me. Oh my God. I, uh, I had to take out the garbage at work today and it's... Just maybe like a hundred foot walk from my office to the garbage. And I was like, I get back in the office. I'm like, why am I sweating? Yeah. I didn't it's, run. It's, it's like walking through a swamp. It's great. Yeah. You know what, though? I will fucking take it over the like negative 60 with wind chill weather and snow drifts that were at least twice my size. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Yeah. Like, no, that's what someone said this winter. They were like, people better not fucking complain about the heat this summer because they're complaining about the cold. And I'm like, eh. I had I had someone in the office, they were saying that someone on the radio described the heat like a smack in the face. And yeah, I was like that's how I've described it before you walk out the door and you get smacked in the face. It's better than a piercing stab to the face, which is what the cold is. Oh, yeah. I'm like, is. you step outside, if it's too cold, your skin cells start just like killing themselves because they can't handle it this you just get a little sweaty i will deal with it everything is i've heard it on facebook before and i've said it aloud before the whole the air hurts my face why do i live in a place where the air hurts my face because it also kills all of the snakes and bugs and scorpions and crocodiles (laughs) all right emily how about you tell us about our lovely wine this evening so uh we are revisiting a fan favorite some sweet and I'm not going to read the uh, description because we've already done this, but we are drinking some sweet bit, sweet, some sweet bitch, sweet. S- Moscato Rosé. <laughs> it's called a smooth and fruity Moscato Rosé. And honestly, I picked it because I still love the name of this wine. And I wanted to, I was like, Moscato Rosé, those are like two of the wines I really am a fan of. And right. this shit. Oh, it's real good. Is amazing. It's smooth. It's like. Kind of like a juice. Yeah. Like you it's could, not like too sweet, but it's sweet like sweet enough. Yeah. Wet. Like we it's very wet. It's Which so, I'm a fan of wet wines versus dry wines. It's so moist in my mouth. <laughs> Everyone turned off. Everyone's done. Everyone's like, I'm done with this podcast forever. So what are we choosing to today? I think I always make you choose. Yeah, that's not you choose. Okay, uh, we are choosing to the fact it is Friday. I had like a very mixed bag of a day the first half. I killed it. The second half, I got killed. So for better or for worse, I have the week and I don't have to deal with shit until Monday. So cheers. For all those listening on our Monday releases, we're all going to rock this week. For all of you listening on Monday, I am so sorry. I get it. I'm here for you. I'm. You can just imagine me sitting behind my desk, dying. I am there with you. Yep, we all are. <laughs> okay, so I'm going first this week, right? Yes, you are, okay. man. Okay. Okay, so before I get started, I want to give a little shout out to who inspired me to cover this lady. Um, I was on Instagram, and we follow the women's history hashtag because, of course, we do. And uh, there was an artist, Caitlin Cass, who does amazing comics and art. And a lot of them are history related. So you, Which is awesome. You bet we follow her now. Um, 
so according to her Instagram profile, uh, she does amazing comics, quote, about history and the horror and wonder of being. Which is just the coolest sentence I have ever read. Yeah, and and totally true. I love it. Um, so she did a comic that just was a really like brief, maybe four or five panel overview of the lady I'm doing. Yep. Um, so definitely check it out. You can find her on Instagram at caitlin.cas, C-A-I-T-L-I-N dot C-A-S. And you can check her out on her website, www.caitlincast.com, because she will make you say her name. Fuck you yeah. go, Caitlin. You go, girl. Okay. So I am covering Gertrude Ederly. She was the first woman to swim across the English Channel. Ooh, that's cool. And I swam, well, I started doing like those baby swimmer classes when I was a wee tot and started competitively swimming when I was five. So yeah, I identify with this. For like two years. Well, <laughs> Kelly, it's cool because I always forget Kelly was a swimmer. So I'll be talking about it, and she's like, Emily, stop inadvertently mansplaining swimming right. to me. <laughs> I understand. <laughs> so I thought you would appreciate this I too. Do. That's really cool. Okay. So Gertrude was born in New York City, New York on October 23rd, 1905. We're going way back. Uh, so she was born to German immigrants as the third of six children. Her father, Henry, taught her to swim in New Jersey, where the family had a summer cottage. Ooh, that's fancy. So she, she. I mean, you know how you do. You have your summer cottage. You have your winter palace. You have your fall fortitude. <laughs> your spring chalet. See, in Minnesota, we, everyone just has a cabin. Everyone just has a cabin. Oh, we're going, going to, to the cabin on the lake. Yes! <laughs> when I first moved here from Illinois, where there is no water except <laughs> by Chicago, like, I was shocked. Everyone has a fucking boat or a cabin. And I'm I like, know. am I, I wish not? I, I wish I did. Yeah, I'm like, am I not a Minnesotan because I don't have a boat or a cabin? And everyone goes hunting when they're like five. Right. I was like, what? That's I, also not something my family doesn't do. We have... Here's the thing, though. Your family lives yeah, on a lake. Yeah, my parents live on a lake. <laughs> you don't need a cabin. We okay. have year-round water access. Yes. It's so much fun. When they returned to New York City in the winter, Gertrude kept practicing swimming in horse troughs. Those right, must have been some really big troughs. Yeah, depending on the types of horses or how many. Yeah. I mean, this was the early 1900s, so that's how you got around. Yeah. So... It's like parking lots. There's it's just crazy. a sea yeah. of horse troughs. <laughs> I guess her dad got pissed off at her and like punished her for it. I'm like, well, yeah, that's how you get horse disease. Yeah, right. Like, yeah. <laughs> okay. The amateur hour. Well, Gertrude took to swimming like a fish to water. I put pause for Kelly's disappointment, but you were into it. <laughs> yeah, I, I like, like that. that. Uh, and she began to train with the Women's Swimming Association, or WSA. Uh, beginning at 12 years old, Gertrude trained at the WSA's small indoor pool for a fee of $3 a year, which is about $85 in today's money. It's oh, my God. That's cheaper for than... a year? That's not bad. That's cheaper than a gym subscription. I'm sure that's cheaper than going to the Y. Yeah. Though the pool was small, the WSA is known for training competitors including Athelda Blitterby, Charlotte Boyle, Helen Wainwright, Eileen Riggin, Eleanor Holm, and Esther Williams, who I know are all household names. And everyone's nodding, going, ah, yes. Oh, yes. All yes, of them. Esther Williams. I'm quite familiar. The WSA was kind of a big deal at the time. 
the front crawl or freestyle stroke as we more know it today was actually developed there. And I'll get into that a little more later. But at the time, swimsuits for women were undergoing a revolution, evolving from the full body dresses of yore to the more traditional style that we know today. I was wondering what made you post that swimsuit picture on (laughs) Instagram the other day. I was like, okay. Well, that's like when I was doing um, Annie uh, Kapchowski. I started posting a bunch of stuff about how bikes were so liberating for women. And so doing this research, I started posting a bunch of stuff about the evolution of the swimsuit for women. And Kelly's like, Emily, are you trying to give me hints? (laughs) Still super conservative. uh, They included stockings, but were still a significant improvement from a drowning-inducing frock. Yeah. This made swimming more accessible, a.k.a. possible. For women and competitive swimming saw a surge in popularity. Right. It would be so hard to competitively swim in a frock. <laughs> I think you would just drown. They weren't. I don't think they were meant for you, swimming. They no, were meant for wading. Yeah. You just stood in the water. Yeah. There, you, there was no swimming. If you go past your waist, you just get pulled under. Uh, so the Amateur Athletic Union, or AAU, was being pressured to recognize women swimming as a legitimate sport. In 1919, WSA director Charlotte Epi Epstein, which is the cutest little nickname ever. I really like that. I'm going to name a cat Epi. Um, so she asked the AAU to, quote, allow swimmers to remove their stockings for competition as long as they quickly put on a robe once they got out of the water. Because... Seeing a woman's bare legs would have just made everyone's brains explode. It just drives people insane. Oh, the blood everywhere. Yeah, just shooting out <laughs> of the orifices. Which is funny because I remember training for big competitions and I would wear, like we would shave everything, like yep. our arms and legs, and we would wear old stockings while we were warming up. So then when you jump in and you feel the freedom of having no hair on your body, it gives you this like confident boost and you go faster. Interesting. Yeah. Famous swim coach L. Deb Hanley volunteered at the WSA because they were too broke to pay him. Uh, He was one of Gertrude's early coaches, and he's known for developing the new and more efficient swimming techniques, including the American front crawl, which involved taking fewer breaths, thus leading to less resistance. It was like a modified Australian front crawl. I didn't know there were so many different front crawls. I did. Well, that's because everyone figured out Okay, let's just breathe as little as possible right. and make sure when in you any bl- type of stroke. And then just make sure when you're breathing not to breathe on the same side and go. <laughs> so stockings or no, Gertrude became such a skilled swimmer, she would have certainly been burned as a witch in years past. <laughs> the same year she joined the WSA, Gertrude set her first world record in the 880-yard freestyle, mm-hmm. making her the youngest world record holder in swimming. Yeah, because I was going to say, you said she started at 12, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's insane. Um, so, side note, this record, and I don't know if it was held until this moment or if there were other, like, successive yep. competitors that beat this record, but this is the one I found. So, sh- her record of being the youngest world record holder was beaten by Karen Muir, a South African swimmer who broke the world record for, for the 100 meter backstroke at 12 years, 10 months and 25 days old in 1965 might have to do a story on her in the future. Cause apparently this also made Karen the youngest person to break any sporting world record. Wow. Yeah. So shout props to Karen. Yeah. That's crazy. She's not a part of the story, but props. 
So Gertrude Frio for skill and long distance opened water swimming in 1922 when she was only 15 or 16. No one really can figure the shit out. Years old. Gertrude entered the Joseph P. Day Cup, a three and a half mile race in New York Bay. And for anyone who doesn't know, open water swimming is hell. It's so much different than pool swimming because that water is choppy as fuck. Before this race, her longest race had only been 220 yards. Wow, that's a difference. She blew everyone's bloomers off by beating U.S. champion Helen Wainwright and British champ Hilda James, along with 51 other contestants. I couldn't find what she placed overall, but like she's a child and she's like killing champs. Yeah, she's killing it in her first race in open water. It's the longest she's ever done. So Gertrude continued leaving everyone in her wake, so many swim puns, uh, as she set eight more world records, seven of which she set in one fucking year. Wow. From 1921 to 1925, Gertrude held 29 national and world records. She's just collecting these things like bottle caps, just racking them up. She just likes to swim. Her bedpost is a wreck. (laughs) In 1924, Gertrude swam in the Summer Olympics in Paris, home of me and Kelly's favorite unpronounceable words. Heck yeah. Did you Do you know um, the French word for bird? No. Wazoo. <laughs> and none of the letters that make those sounds are in it. It's like O-A-U-I-S. I don't know. It's insane. That's interesting. Uh, there she won the, a gold medal as part of the 4x100 meter freestyle relay. She and her team... Yeah. She and her team comprised of Euphrasia Donnelly, Ethel Lackey, and Mary Shen Wilslau. Sorry. Names. <laughs> yep. Set a new world record of four minutes and 58.8 seconds. That record was broken by three seconds in 1928. And the current record for the women's long course 4 by 100 free relay is, any guesses? No. Three minutes, oh, 30 shit. Point five oh five seconds. That's impressive. We have come so far. So that was set by an an Australian team in 2018. Wow, it is insane. Like, like where is the threshold? Are we ever gonna hit a threshold in like sports excellence where it's like the human body cannot go any faster than this until you get bionic? This is what happens when you don't have to swim in dresses and stockings. Yeah, there you go. During the 1924 Summer Olympics, Gertrude also earned two bronze medals in the 100-meter and 400-meter freestyle. That year, the American team brought home a total of 99 medals and was met with a ticker tape parade when they returned. Because this was the day of ticker tape parades. Right. Something we will never experience because they're terrible for the environment, aren't they? Yes. And, like, who has to clean that up? Probably just the city. Oh, it's awful. Even though she's straight up killing it, Gertrude would later say that, quote, her failure to win three golds in the games was the biggest disappointment oh, of her career. Oh, that's heartbreaking. You know what? Like, and I get it it's because like you, you placed, though. Yeah, but here's the thing. If you settle, like, that's not yeah. what makes a good athlete. It's still heartbreaking. Though. Yeah. This next section is titled Professional AF. Now, with three Olympic medals and dozens of world records under her swim cap, Gertrude was ready to go pro. Yeah, she's not pro yet. Nope. <laughs> she's just doing this for fun. You'd, you'd think going to the Olympics would put you in the pro category. Right. Well, and there's a bunch of 
uh, stipulations for going pro it's like you can be competing and killing it but you have to be making a certain amount of money to be considered pro i think that's interesting uh, in 1925, Gertrude swam 22 miles from Battery Park to Sandy Hook, which took her seven hours and 11 minutes, a record that would stand for 81 years. Jesus. That's impressive. Right? However, this was just, as her nephew later described, a midnight frolic and warm-up for her crowning moment. Yes, listeners, Gertrude was going to indulge in the great American tradition of making England our bitch. Or at least the English channel. And for any English listeners, I'm so sorry. We respect you so much. You actually probably dodged a massive bullet with us. <laughs> Let's just be <laughs> right, honest. like the unruly stepchild. Oh, my God. I know. Like, you guys are getting good grades. You know, you have an after-school job. And we're just riding around in our leather jackets on motorcycles without helmets. Right. And, like... Taking baseball bats, (laughs) taking baseball bats to mailboxes. (laughs) All right. The English Channel. Uh, The English Channel is a body of water that separates southern England from northern France. It varies in width, but most swimmers start at the Strait of Dover, which is about 20 miles wide. Or if you're 99% of the rest of the world, 33 kilometers. (laughs) (laughs) Many people had attempted to swim the channel but only five had completed it by this time according to dover.uk.com citing our sources like fucking professionals 10 people have died while trying to complete the swim starting in 1926 creepy side note while i was reading about the recorded deaths there were like three people who were only a few miles away from finishing there was one who was like a mile away yeah, from finishing and they just, just died like gave out yep. it's like jesus I mean, that can happen when you run too that's horrifying endurance swimming was really hip at the time and gertrude was ready for a new challenge originally she was going to swim with another wsa swimmer helen wainwright who she beat in that like sandy hook swim But she had to back out at the last minute due to an injury, probably slipping on the fucking pool deck and getting a concussion. Probably. We had like three girls one year on our team get concussions from slipping on the pool deck. Oh, yeah. It's dangerous. So Gertrude decided to continue alone. She trained with swimmer Jabez Wolfie. W-O-L-F-F-E. I'm going to call him Wolfie. I'm not a fan, so I don't really give a shit. Uh, So Wolfie had attempted to swim the channel 22 times. Oh, Jesus. Attempted. Never Never did it. Never finished. Yeah. Wolfie was also kind of sexist and commented that women may not be capable of making the swim. I'd be like, well, clearly you're not capable. Right? I'm like, what's your excuse? Right? So I was actually talking about this with Jared the other night. And he's like, well, I was like super. I was like, oh, Wolfie's such a son of a bitch. He goes, I'm not disagreeing with you. And you're 100% right. But just remember, this is like the mid. This is like the 1920s. It was the thought of the time that women were physically inferior to men and they were considered yeah absolutely so before i just really rip into him i do just want to put this in the context like this was just the way it was commonly thought of at the time that doesn't make it right that doesn't make it excusable but i think it's important for us to perceive um historical events and attitudes within the appropriate context still an asshole oh absolutely he's just an historically accurate asshole (laughs) So during trainings, Wolfie kept telling Gertrude to slow the fuck down because she would never make it at her quick pace. 
Apparently, learning from a 22-time failure didn't work out because when Gertrude made her first attempt, Wolfie got her disqualified by telling another swimmer to pull her out of the fucking water. What? Yeah, so when you do the channel swim, there's usually someone following you in a boat to make sure you don't just, like, drown and then they can never find you. And there was a safety swimmer in the water. And so he told the safety swimmer, like, go go drag her out. Go drag her into this boat right now. And uh, What an asshole. So Wolfie thought she was drowning. Oh, bullshit. Or that she was, like, getting seasick or something. But she was actually just resting and Gertrude was pissed. I would be so mad. And here's the thing. Like, if you're drowning, you're either going to be in distress or you're just going to be floating there, not moving and not responsive. Right, whereas she was probably just slowing her pace. Yeah. And then it's, like, all it would have taken is, like, hey, you good? You good? And I'm pretty sure that's what the up? safety swimmer is supposed to do is, if anything, they come up and like touch your leg and be like, hey, are you okay? Right. Is understandably been speculated that the bitter, sexist, 22 time failure sabotaged Gertrude. Yeah. So either he was like, oh, honey, you're too frail. You know, you, you can't do this. And, See, or and I would he be like, like, next time I'm attempting this, you are not even allowed in England. <laughs> Just leave. <laughs> it's funny that you mention that. Uh, because Gertrude said, fuck that noise, and began training with Bill Burgess, a swimmer who had successfully completed the channel swim in 1911. Nice. Upgrade, girl. Upgrade. Do not settle for a man who tries to clip your fins. You will soar like the mighty flying fish. (laughs) (laughs) At this time, Gertrude's peers were attempting the swim themselves. Three days before Gertrude made made her second attempt... Clarabelle Barrett may, uh, tried to swim the channel, but got lost in some fog and was officially declared missing. Oh, that's t- that, did, did they find her? She was found, but she had to quit only two miles from the finish. That sucks. Again, it's like you are so close and your body just gives up on you. So one year later, on August 6th, 1926... And remember, this you was... you allowed to try to swim the channel once a oh, year? Y- y- I don't know. Well, here's the thing. If you were not strong enough to swim it the first time she doesn't know that because that one guy was an asshole yeah but especially before you're training for like a competition you taper that's true so there's like a special regimen of tapering where it's like you're resting your body while staying active so uh so gertrude set out from the from cape grenet look that one up, in France at 7.08 a.m. She was coated in olive oil, lanolin, and Vaseline in an attempt to help keep her warm. Vaseline, sponsor us. <laughs> Anyone sponsor us. <laughs> uh, she also wore a two-piece swimsuit, which Ooh. is still a controversial move for competitive swimmers today. And um, I'm almost done. So quick anecdote. One of my swim coaches had this great story. There was a woman who was try- that he knew who was trying to compete in a swimming competition, and she was in a two-piece swimsuit. And the judges or the, you know, admins or whatever were like, you can't fucking do that because like, cause, cause yeah. dudes can swim in something that literally just covers their junk and their butt cracks. But right. like we have to co- like we can't swim in a two piece that covers everything. Right. So one of the administrators went over to her as she's standing up on the blocking ready to get started. And he goes, you you can't swim in a two piece. You can only swim in a one piece. And she says, OK, which Please piece tell me she took her top off. She asked, which piece do you want me to take off? And they let her fucking swim because they're like, nope. 
nope, nope. We're not touching that one. I'm so uncomfortable with women's bodies right now. <laughs> so yeah. during her swim in the bitterly cold water, Gertrude encountered squalls, which, which left Burgess, her coach, urging her to get out. Gertrude was like, fuck that, and kept going. Her father and sister were riding in the boat with Burgess and were also like, fuck that, and urged Gertrude to go on. Apparently, Gertrude's father had promised to buy her a new roadster if she finished, and during her swim, he would call out to remind her as a way of, like, cheering her on. She's like, he's like, oh, only this many miles left. Just imagine how much fun you're going to have in your new roadster. Yeah, that's awesome. Which is, like, peak father support. Right? That's wonderful. To protect her eyes from the salty water, Gertrude used motorcycle goggles that were sealed with paraffin to keep them watertight. 14 hours and 31 minutes later, 20-year-old Gertrude completed her 35-mile swim at Kingsdown, Kent. And she wasn't supposed to swim 35 miles, but they figured because she got like knocked off course with the, the storms and, and stuff. stuff yeah. So she, they estimate she probably did swim about 35 miles. This made her the sixth person ever to complete the swim and the first woman to do so. It makes me wonder the other five, the five men that completed it before her. I want to know how old they were. Right. Because uh, I don't know how Burgess. Like 20. Yeah. I don't know how old her coach was, but he completed it in 1911. Mm-hmm. So he probably wasn't that old. Like I'm imagining him as like this kind 20s. of dashing 30 some year old. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so however, the long exposure in the cold water left Gertrude with hearing loss. I also read that she had some hearing problems from getting measles as a kid, but either way, the cold water didn't fucking help. Yeah. Gertrude's father had bet Lloyd's of London, which is this not really insurance company business. I don't know. I tried to look it up and it was so confusing. I didn't care. But anyway, he bet this company business whatever that his daughter would succeed and subsequently won one hundred and seventy five thousand dollars nice almost 2.5 million in today's money so no wonder he was gonna buy her a fucking roadster right it's like he's like you have to finish i want my money peak father support but also financially sound uh, a butcher by trade, Gertrude's father, gave out free frankfurters to his whole neighborhood to celebrate his Aww. daughter's achievement because he could fucking afford it, too. Right. I mean, good God. So when Gertrude returned to Manhattan, she received a ticker tape parade attended by some two million people. Jesus. She's killing it. That's like her second ticker tape parade. She's only 20. Right. That's awesome. God, honey. So when she got back, shit started getting real as Gertrude was bombarded with book and movie deals along with marriage proposals. Because that's just what you did when someone did something cool in the day. Right. You At least when it was a woman. Them. Yeah. She toured North America, was in a movie, met President Coolidge, had a vaudeville career, and more. Holy shit. There was so much shit. And I'm like, this is getting long. We need to stop. Um, but all of this took a toll and she suffered a nervous breakdown in 1928. So two years after her swim... She has, so she did a whole bunch of shit in two years, yeah, and then just kind of suffered for it. Yeah, and I feel you, girl. Like that's tough. And then in 1933, she also fell down her apartment steps and twisted her spine. Ooh, that sounds so gross. She did recover, though. You oh, know, like that makes my back like I know, like all of my back pro- all of my back muscles that are already garbage. Just seize the fuck yeah, up. Like, uh. One reporter remarked, quote, her recovery was slow and undoubtedly most more difficult than any swim she ever made. Oh, I'm sure. I 
fucking bet. Like, how do you twist your spine? How do you recover from Stop that? saying that. <laughs> okay. By 1940, Gertrude was nearly completely deaf. Gertrude's hearing loss helped her identify with children with the same disability, and she later taught hearing impaired children to swim. Aww. Oh, my God, Gertrude, you have my heart. By 1940, Gertrude was nearly completely deaf, and she never married, but she passed away peacefully on November 30th, 2003, and 98 years old. Oh, and she was, like, living awesome. in a, a nursing home or something. She had only been there since, like, 2000 or 2001, so she lived a long time, like, at On least her in her nurse. own home. Yeah. Like, That's maybe awesome. had a nurse or something, but yeah, she killed it. So, Legacy. Gertrude's impact is wide-reaching, but here are a few legacy factoids that I enjoyed. Gertrude was inducted into the International Swimming Hall of Fame in 1965, and good on them, she was around to see it. Uh, Her midnight frolic swim from Battery Park to Sandy Hook was renamed the Ederly Swim in her memory. Cute. And then, this is my favorite because it's the dumbest. In Disney's The Princess and the Frog, which takes place in the 1920s, Gertrude's name appears in a newspaper article read by Eli Big Daddy LaBeouf. So the guy played by, um, fuck, I I know him, Roseanne's husband, John Goodman. Goodman. Yes. Thank you. I'm so scared. Every time I look over, I'm so scared you're going to spill your wine because you're like holding it at an angle. I'm sitting here and just like lazily holding my glass of wine by the side and like my but wrist is cocked. At an angle. Yeah. yeah. And then every time she like moves, I'm like, oh God, it's going over. But you know what? It's okay because that is a story of Gertrude Ederly. And now it is your turn. So I can just sit back and drink my wine. I don't have to read or do anything. You have to listen and comment. All right. Okay, so I'm giving a second shout out to Kara on t- who shouted out this woman to have people cover, and she she copied or she sent it out to two other fabulous podcasters, but I stole it because I saw it. Um, but hey, you can never have too much info on a history person, right? Especially women that people forget. One hundred percent. So I'm I'm cocking my here. wine glass in a listening way and commenting. <laughs> <laughs> So today I am covering Martha Gellhorn. She was born November 8th, 1908 in St. Louis, Missouri to Edna Fischel Gellhorn, a suffragist, and George Gellhorn, a prominent gynecologist in the area. Oh my God, what a woke family. They actually really, really were. Um, She had two, two brothers, one was older and one was younger, who both went on to do important stuff, but they're not really important to the story. I hope they had good lives and we're gonna move on. Yeah. So her father had very progressive notions and her mother, whom Martha adored, was a suffragist and a social reformer who sometimes took her daughter with her to protests and rallies, such as in 1916 at the Democratic National Convention in St. Louis. They had something called the Golden Lane, which represented thousands of women all carrying yellow parasols and wearing yellow sashes that lined both sides of the street leading to the Coliseum. It also held a tableau of states in front of the art museum. So that was everyone wearing yellow was a state that women could vote. States who had not enfranchised women were draped in black. In the front row. Wait, that had disenfranchised women? Had not enfranchised women. So they couldn't vote yet. Okay. Not enfranchised. Same as disenfranchised. Okay. (laughs) I've I've just never heard it said that way. Look at me listening and commenting. Um, (laughs) 
In the front row were two little girls, Mary Tausig and Martha Gellhorn, representing future voters. Aww. Yeah. The children really are our future. I know. So as she was growing up, she started out in a convent school. However, her father pulled her out of the convent school when he discovered the nuns were teaching female anatomy with textbooks that had its pictures covered. So I want you to look at this picture that we covered and just imagine a vagina. Right. You have no concept for it. Imagine a rose, which is so anatomically correct. Um, and there's a little, there's a little like button at the top. Never touch it. <laughs> that is a no button. <laughs> That's um, a no button. So he transferred the girls to a progressive co-educational school, which their mother helped co-found. Damn. So, yeah. I'm loving this family. Right. Um, so after she graduated from high school, she went on to college and she started out with an English major and then switched to a French major and then dropped out of college to pursue journalism because you go girl and you do what you want to do yeah you go girl so that was in 1927 when she dropped out of college her first article was published in in the magazine called the new republic which she continued writing for until she eventually became a crime reporter for a local newspaper in albany Wait, she was a crime reporter? Yep. So she just wrote general articles and then she became a crime reporter for a little while. That's awesome. I'm so right. excited. It doesn't last long. Oh. That's it. That's all you I was like, about it. she's not like the first person to crack the Jack the Ripper case or right, anything. I feel like we would know about that if that happened. <laughs> By 1930, Martha wanted to be a foreign correspondent. To do that, she went to France and worked worked in Paris for the United Press. She got to she got to to France by writing a brochure for the Holland America line in return for passage on their ship. I wonder if I can start traveling the country by writing shit right? for people. Hey, hey, Boeing, I will write a pamphlet for you if you give me lifetime free airfare right. or just fly so me fly me to all of my history destinations. So while she was in France, she also became active in the pacifist movement and later published a book titled What Mad Pursuit on on her experiences there, a book that she said she later became embarrassed by. Aw, why? She didn't really go into it. But apparently, like, her family didn't like it and stuff like that. It was apparently a very odd book. But that was the first book she ever wrote. Well, she's young. She's experimenting. Right? It's like, I look at stuff that I wrote two years ago, and I'm like, oh, Emily, honey, you dumb piece of shit. Right. <laughs> um, she fell in love with her first husband in France, uh, Bertrand de Jovenel, and they mm. married, or at least presented themselves as husband and wife. People aren't quite clear if he had actually successfully divorced his first wife. Oh, shit. So. <laughs> they were in a committed long-term um, relationship. They returned to St. Louis in 1931 and divorced later in 1933. Or oh. separated. Depending. Okay, so they were in a one-year committed relationship. No, 1931 to 33. Oh, two years. Two okay. Years. <laughs> Um, it's not not bad. So later, er, social worker, <laughs> social worker. Um, after much talk of their their work, you know what he does and what she does, um, she eventually joined his team when he started the Federal Emergency Relief Administration. Emily's thinking Fura. about it. Fur. 
Fura. Um, this team would travel to parts of the country hit hardest by the Great Depression and report back. Mm. The narrative portrait that was painted from these missives of what the Americans were enduring were, was sent to President Roosevelt. They did not report facts and statistics, but lives of the people that were dealing what was ongoing. It was real and it was raw. You know, even today in like journalism and reporting, when something gets emotional, there's the argument that it's biased. Right. And I'm like, I get that because people use that emotional draw to kind of manipulate people or readers yeah but at the same time sometimes a story is just sad and a situation is just terrible and saying it's terrible is not bias it's just it's bad you know and it's okay to say that right at 25 martha was the youngest person on their reporting team she received travel vouchers and five dollars a day to go from town to town Living it up. Right. She started in Gaston County, North Carolina, where she interviewed families of mill workers and sharecroppers. She saw more poverty, syphilis, slow starvation, and utter despair than anything her her life up to that point could have prepared her for. I was going to say, she came from a pretty well-off, super woke family. Right. I can't imagine she was used to this kind of rural, poverty-stricken, right. these communities. Her reports in particular were real and moving portraits of people who were struggling beyond all hope and yet too proud to go on relief. Oh. She admired their grit and wept for them and shook with rage at the same time. All of this comes through in her writing, which was being unknowingly, to her, sent by Hopkins to Eleanor Roosevelt as well as FDR. Oh, you go, Eleanor. She's such a gem. I know. Eleanor encouraged her husband to talk to her, and so it came about that Martha was invited to dinner at the White House to share stories of who and what she had seen. Holy shit. This dinner became an open invitation to visit any time to tell them more both about what she was doing and the people that she met. Do you think Martha, Eleanor, and Hicks ever just had, like, a fun ladies' night in where they drank wine and talked about how they were going to save the world? Probably. (laughs) Nearly a year into her post traveling the country, Martha was fired for inciting a riot among unemployed workers in rural Idaho. Before you continue, I'm being very self-conscious. When I said Hicks, I am not referring to the rural poor people. For for those of you who didn't hear uh, when we gave Eleanor a shout-out for being by. Hicks was a reporter and like 99% sure her lover. So I was referring to her. I'm not like saying. I got it, but I get where you're Her and all the poor people are hanging out. I'm not saying that. Um, After the incident, Eleanor wrote to Martha to say that she was welcome to live at the White House until she could get back on her feet. Oh, my God. Martha (laughs) accepted and stayed in what would later be named the Lincoln Belgium. The Lincoln Bedroom. The Lincoln Belgium. Yeah. It's very complicated. Uh, while she lived there, she helped Eleanor answer sheaves of mail from people in dire straits. That is the coolest couch crashing story right? I've ever heard. Hey, come live at the White House. Yeah. Um, Honey, I got you. Right. Martha saw Eleanor as a private hero and began using her time at the White House to use her voice and considerable energy to expose the, the suffering she had seen and give it a broad, loud platform. The resulting book, thrown off in a few short burning months, became The Trouble I've Seen, a collection of four novellas that was praised far and wide. According to the Saturday Review of Literature, it seemed to be, quote, woven not out of words, but out of the tissues of human beings. Holy shit. How come I've never heard of this woman? Because, like... You'll see. Just her having such a strong connection to Eleanor fucking Roosevelt. Right, I know. Like, um, that made her a great literary discovery of 1936. 
um, by a chance meeting while vacationing in Florida over Christmas of that same year, so it had nothing to do with her publishing the book, she happened to run into a famous author. In fact, some of you may only know Martha because of who she married later, Ernest Hemingway. Oh! The author was reading his mail, and the two practically actually, like, physically ran into each other. Oh, my God. Um, She was 28 at the time, and he was 37. He had recently published some of his major novels, um, so he was a really big deal at the time. The two hit it off and began a small affair, though he was married to wife number two at this point. Oh, Ernest, honey. When he told her at the end of this vacation that he was heading to Spain to cover the Spanish Civil War, she decided to go, too. She went to Madrid in the spring of 1937, carrying a single, napsta- a single knapsack and $50 to cover the war for Colliers Weekly, which is a newspaper. I love how people in history, they just, oh, I'm just going to grab my knapsack right. with like a block of cheese and $10 and on a whim, right. go cover a civil war. No big deal. Like many of the writers and artists of her genuine generation she sympathized passionately with the democratically elected government in spain who was fighting against the fascist generals fascism is bad we're taking a controversial stance there um her spanish dispatches quote revealed a gift for unflinching observation and unforth pathos and were much better than hemingway's end quote suck it Ernest. that was written by mark wayne who is a writer for the new york post damn so one of one of her missives that people thought, you know, was unflinching observations, like the guy said, this is so this is her missive. Quote, in Barcelona, it was perfect bombing weather. The cafes along the Ramblas were crowded. There was nothing much to drink. A sweet fizzy poison called orangeade and a horrible liquid supposed to be sherry. There was, of course, nothing to eat. Everyone was out enjoying the cold afternoon sunlight. No bombers had come over for at least the last two hours. End quote. Yep. A sweet, fizzy poison. Perfect orange aid. bombing weather. <laughs> I know. That is beautiful. I know. I'm um, there. Unfortunately, um, as you may know, the Spanish fascists won the war in 1939. Boo. Um, and, sh- and she was absolutely crushed. She said, nothing in my life has so affected my thinking as the losing of that war. It is very banally like the death of all loved things. Well, and it's like we talk about on this podcast advancement and like progression is inevitable but it is long and it is hard and it is painful and you lose so many people along the way and so to see something like that just go the wrong way has got to be so disheartening and heartbreaking especially because she was there experiencing it this this wasn't like a third hand oh man that's awful kind of thing she's like i know what's going to happen to all these people now right so during her coverage of the war, her, her and Hemingway um, were lovers, and she actually had another lover as well, a different journalist. Get it, girl. And they mar- um, her and Hemingway married in 1940. Hemingway demanded absolute loyalty. And while history likes to say Hemingway nurtured her as a correspondent, what they don't seem to mention is that he also tried very hard to ruin her. Fucking earnest. Right. After they had been together for six years, the war in Europe escalated. And I think they mean not married six years, just together six years. The war in Europe escalated and Collier sent Martha to London to cover the aftermath of how people were responding after the Blitz. Yeah. Which was probably terrible. Oh, my God. Hemingway. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. I was going to say, so when I was uh, in London, 
I went to this museum. It was like the history of London. Yep. And I'm like, oh, archaeological stuff. Cool. Da, da, da. And then I get to the section about World War II. I'm like, this is horrifying. And like, it's it not is, like I didn't was. know about it. But no. to see these big exhibits talking about it, I'm like, can you imagine being a little kid and having your mother wake you up because right? the sirens are going like, off? Hey, you need you have to, to go in the shelter. Hey, you need to go into the like the, the, the underground and hide. And then you come back out and you have no idea what's going to be waiting for you right. or That's if your house terrifying. got blown away. That's or terrible. being a parent. Like, I can't even imagine. Or being a parent having to ship your kid off to the countryside so they don't get fucking blown right? up. And just pray they come back. And yeah. And pray that you're still there. Oh, my fucking yeah. God. Oh, yeah. So while, while she was off in London, London Hem- Hemingway complained of being abandoned and sent her a note that said, quote, are you a war correspondent or a wife in my bed? Can't End you be quote. both? In his mind, she could not be both. She was a bed warmer or nothing to him. Fuck you, so a little, a little background on Ernest Hemingway's previous wives. His first wife was Hadley Richardson, who had no career. His second wife was Pauline Pfeiffer, who very quickly stopped being a journalist for Paris Vogue to be Mrs. Hemingway instead. Um, I'm, as you've probably already gathered from the story, Martha was a completely different sort of woman who would not be bullied into something she didn't want to do. And journalism was her passion and you know what's interesting is it clearly didn't work out with the first wife who was probably completely submissive like didn't have a career or anything the second wife gave up her career to be with him and that wasn't enough for him because he starts he starts stooping martha right exactly who only god knows who else on the side and it's weird it's like he's enhancing the difficulty level on wives for his expectations you know it's interesting uh, you know, and here's the thing. We can recognize him as a great writer, but like, let's not kid ourselves about what kind of person he was. Like yeah. anyone from history, you can do a good thing or be really good at something, but don't shy away from the dark parts. Right. She would later come to regret the publicity she got for being his wife and then being his ex-wife. Um, a famous quote of hers in an, in an interview is when she bitterly said, why should I be a footnote in somebody else's life? Right. She is such a capable, talented, skilled person on her own. Yeah, she was. She and was she becomes associated with yep. a famous guy and who's famous mostly yeah. because he's a guy. Yep. It's like um, Carolyn and Rodan yep, or Rodan sure. or whatever. Yep. yep. I know. That's exactly what I thought. Of. Oh, my God. Um, she pointed out in this interview that she had written two novels before she met Hemingway and continued writing for almost half a century after leaving him good um probably wrote about how much of a dick he was (laughs) hemingway and martha often quarreled both sometimes so intense and passionate that they frightened each other both had terrible tempers quote ernest and i really are afraid of each other each knowing the other is the most violent person either one knows end quote that's what what martha wrote so they say quarreled and that makes it sound like kind of classy but it sounds really abusive both ways yeah. you know it's oh, yeah. like screaming matches yeah the stuff that gets the cops called on you by the neighbors right they lived in a small villa in cuba i'm sure there was no neighbors <laughs> <laughs> um martha often felt like the relationship was putting on some type of performance and she began to wonder if she were not happiest at war she felt that war made more of her and marriage made less of her she hypothesized that it was because there was no fear in it in marriage the fear came from within Quote, because you agreed to polish all the edges and keep your voices low. You sometimes lost yourself as you knew yourself on the inside. End quote. 
so I have a very healthy relationship with Jared and this isn't a reflection on that, but I feel that because I'm constantly right. wondering being in a relationship, you know, are like in a relationship, each person makes concessions, you know, to benefit the relationship and each other. And I always struggle with the, well, am I making too many concessions? Am I still maintaining my identity, my independence right. and you all of that? You one person. You want to become two separate people that are in a loving, healthy relationship together. Right. Well, and I've, I have not dated a lot. I've never been that person that's like always in a relationship. So yeah. being in a long-term relationship is definitely a new experience for me. And you see other people who are so consumed, like the relationship is their identity. And I always worry about becoming that person, you know? And I think yeah, that's I don't probably think you ever will, but yeah, well, no, I, well, and that's one of the great things about go, doing this podcast. Right <laughs> like, <laughs> but like, uh, you know, Jared's super supportive of me doing this podcast and right. doing my own thing. He gave me a ride here today. Shout oh. out, honey. But like, I, I, that quote, I think a lot of people can identify with yeah, trying to maintain your really own like identity. That. That's wow. Right. I need to read her books. I'm in love. Yeah. And there's, there's a book I want to read that's about her, that's someone like about their marriage in particular that I really mm-hmm. want to read. Um, and a lot of this, uh, an article you might like, although it's a lot of my information. So you might not, you know, maybe I've you guys don't want to read the it. article. <laughs> um, but there, there's an article out there written by Apollo McLean. Um, it was in Town and Country, which kind of surprised me. Is like that Town and Country magazine? What is is that like a housekeep uh, house I think so. home and garden? I don't know. So this woman wrote an article, and it's called "The Extraordinary Life of Martha Gellhorn, the woman, the woman Ernest Hemingway tried to erase." I We're fucking getting up love to that, that point, but yeah, it was a good article. So yeah, shout out to my source, one of my sources. Um, So as they were married, Martha often took him along when she was out writing for Collier's. So they went to Hong Kong together so they could write on the Chinese retreat from the Japanese evasion and they traveled other places together, but their home together was in Cuba. Okay. Um, In 1944, obviously the mist of World War II... Or the beginnings, I guess, kind of. I don't know. Mist. In the mist of World War II. In 1944, Hemingway livid with Martha for choosing her work yet again over him, offered his byline to Collier's, the paper Martha was currently writing for. At the time, each magazine or newspaper was only allowed to send one correspondent to the front in a war. And of course, Hemingway being the bigger author at the time, Collier's chose the bigger name and went with Hemingway. Fuck you, Ernest! Leaving Martha with basically no marriage, because obviously he's pissed. Yeah. And she's pissed. Um, like and that no was the final straw to go report. So he's just swinging his dick around. Yep, he's, to, he yep. to shit on her. It's not even like I really want they, this. They did end up getting a year divorce a year later, but that's yeah. that comes later. Um, God, Martha, however, in the badassery that you know that she is, did find a way back to Europe. It was on a munitions barge loaded with amphibious transport craft and dynamite, headed for England. <laughs> So she just hopped a bar. Yep. She's like, she's like, fuck this. I'm going anyways. Get ready. World War II to Europe. Martha's coming. Right. For the D-Day invasion, Hemingway had a place on the attack transport, the Dorothea L. Dix. Well, sorry. I just realized how funny that name was. Um, well, Martha was left on shore to watch as he stole her thunder and her byline. Instead, in a feat of fuck you and damn it, I'm doing my job anyway that I, <laughs> that I truly aspire to do one day. 
Martha slunk along a dock the night before D-Day as Operation Neptune was in full swing. Some 160,000 Allied troops on nearly 5,000 vessels were being launched across the channel toward Normandy in the largest amphibious assault the world has ever had ever seen. I'm sure a lot of people know that D-Day is a pretty big deal. Um, She had no plan. And when a military personnel approached her, she flashed an expired press badge she had with her and pointed at the pointed at the largest thing in view, which was a large white hospital barge. She said she was there to interview nurses and was absolutely shocked when the guy waved her through. Oh, my God. I'm guessing God. she kind of got waved through because they probably just didn't want to deal with her. And we're like, yeah, fuck, whatever. We have bigger shit to do. You know, okay, so you know how they talk about big dick energy? She had, like, big clit energy. Right? I know. She's just rocking it. She's like, no, 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 no. I, I mean, he doesn't fucking know any better. Yeah, exactly. And oh, my God, yeah. Martha. Um, so Martha boarded this hospital boat knowing that if anyone, knowing that if she happened to get caught, she would be arrested immediately. Um, she found a restroom, with, supposedly, she found a restroom with a locking door um, and set up camp there for the night. You know, just to kind of see. She slept in the bathroom. Yep. The barge began to move. Um, and she she sat there contemplating everything that she could think of that would go wrong. She thought of being captured and expulsed from the ship. The barge could be blown up on its way. Or she could reach her goal, which would also be truly terrifying. So, like, typical anxiety thoughts. Yep. What's the... Where all the ways this could go horribly right. wrong, except the stakes for her were significantly higher. Yeah. She let herself out of the bathroom. Uh, uh, out of her self-made prison I quoted that from that mm. other article because I liked that <laughs> to see the cliffs of Normandy and the mind-boggling spectacle that was D-Day which I can only freaking imagine Jesus Christ well and being a, a civilian and just being able to witness that instead oh, yeah. of being involved that's right? oh my god what she saw was thousands of destroyers battleships attack vessels transport ships um, and the sky was filled with a violent mirror of airborne division raining down thousands of bombs. And that was just the Allied side of this fight. Oh, my fucking God. Amid this chaos, no longer caring about her personal or professional safety or consequences, she learned that hands were needed. Any hands. Yeah, no one's going to ask you for a press badge when there are people bleeding out and they right? just need someone to put pressure on the wound. The vessel she happened to be on was... Fortunately, unfortunately, eh, the first hospital ship to arrive at the battle, and things were cray, as you can imagine. <laughs> Shit was cray on D-Day. <laughs> when a landing craft would pull alongside the hospital carrier, she would fetch food, bandages, water, coffee, and she did whatever she could help, including some interpretation as she, you know, had taken French at one point. God. Good on her. That is honestly right? the most miraculous part of her story. Learning fucking French. <laughs> I appreciate you people so much. Right. When night fell and the, the the fighting quieted with a handful of doctors and medics, she went ashore on Omaha Beach. Not as a journalist, but as a stretcher bearer. She flung herself into the icy, shir- uh, icy surf that was brimming with corpses, following just behind the minesweepers to recover the wounded. She labored with the team all night, got blisters on her hands, and her mind and heart were forever seared with the images of pain and death she would never forget. She said afterward that she, you know, she lost a chunk of her happiness that day and she could never get it back. That is chilling. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there are things you cannot unexperience. They never leave you. You learn to cope. Oh, yeah. You don't get over it. Later... 
you know, after she got off the beach of Normandy, <laughs> um, <laughs> she found out that every of every one of the hundreds of credentialed journalists that had come to cover the story, including Hemingway, sat poised behind her in the channel with binoculars, never making it to shore. So they're just sitting in boats offshore yep. watching. Yep. Oh, my God, Martha. Right. Honey, you are. I'm going to cry. I know. That is She's just, amazing. I love that. So first of all, she worked harder than anyone else just to get there as from a journalist perspective. Right. Okay. And then she got involved and she she was helping people because she's like, how you can't just watch this. Right. You can't yeah. just watch people die and then someone needs an extra pair of hands and you're just like not my problem right journalist i'm a journalist i don't have to be involved with this i have you know journalistic integrity something about observing the subject changes the outcome so hemingway's story soon appeared in colliers it appeared alongside martha's but guess who was given top billing it fucking better have been martha Nope. Shut up. It was Hemingway. Shut the fuck up right now. Yep. Rewrite this story. I am unhappy. (laughs) Even though she had been on the beach and the truth was written in the sand, so to speak, there were 160,000 men on that beach and one woman, Martha. Stop. Right fucking now. Nope. (laughs) I am livid. Oh, yeah. In case anyone couldn't tell. Oh, my God. Because here's the thing, like. The only it, reason he got the bigger byline is because he was more famous and he was a man. Well, and the thing is, it's like she had a literally hands-on right? experience. She was on the beach. And l- she was the only v- journalist that had that experience. And you're not going to, like, share that story right? more. I know. That's bullshit. Okay. So I'm... Um, I was so mad when I was I'm going to walk out. This. Kelly's just going to read her notes. <laughs> I'm not going to listen. I'm not going to comment. I'm fucking done. <laughs> I don't think I've been this mad since um, Carolyn's story. Right. Exactly. I don't know. I choose these stories that make people angry. Oh, my God. Okay. Um, <sighs> I'm coming down. Yep. I'm coming down. So Pour more wine. In 1945, Martha left Hemingway, walking out after an argument at London's Dorchester Hotel. She was the only one of Hemingway's wives to leave him, and he never forgave her. Good. Uh, Die mad. One of his biographers noted his hatred of her was a terrible thing to see. She says she left because he was jealous and bullying. Um, yes. <laughs> Here's the thing. What I love about that, though, is that she was the one woman who just... He's like, no, I'm not, not dealing with your shit anymore. He could not control her. She w- almost went out of her way to defy him. Because it was who she was. Well, and because he did it to her first. He was like, I'm going to steal your byline so you stay home and warm my bed. And she's like, fuck that. Fine. I'm going to be part of D-Day. I'm going to save lives, motherfucker. And he resented that because that's an abusive person right there. They want control. They want someone to bend to their will. And when that doesn't happen, the the level of obsession just jumps like 10 notches because it's... you, you. Someone is taking that control away from you. I'm never going to read Ernest Hemingway the same. I've never read about him. I just like, oh, yeah, he's a writer. I hate him. I know. (laughs) Fuck you, Ernest. (laughs) You have a stupid name. So during this time, before she divorced Ernest, she also covered Russia's war against Finland in 1939. Obviously went to China with Hemingway and became increasingly critical of the United States, which she saw growing as a colonial power. And she eventually settled the good for broad. 
So after she left Hemingway, she chose to stay in Europe and became one of the first journalists on hand when the Dachau concentration camp was liberated in April of 1945. Oh, my fucking God. This is really sad. This is what she wrote on her visit. Okay. I I just want to clarify. So she was there when the Dachau concentration camp was liberated. She was like there firsthand. I don't know if she was there, but she was one of the first... I don't know. It says one of the first journalists on hand. Okay. So she was so one it of might the first have been people like, she reporting might have been like, on it. Yeah. Right after. Um, I guess is the army went in and then she was right after. Oh, my fucking God. Because um, D-Day was not traumatizing right. enough. This, this is what she said. Quote, behind the barbed wire and the electric fence, the, sel- the skeletons sat in the sun and searched themselves for lice. They have no age and no faces. They all look alike and like nothing you will ever see if you are lucky. Like nothing you will see if you are lucky. Jesus Christ. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, There's not enough wine in the world right now. After World War II, Martha adopted a son in Italy and raised him largely on her own in Mexico and other countries where she supported herself with a string of articles for women's magazines. Cheers to single moms. Right. And like she made that. That was a very conscious choice, adopting a child on her own. Right. And some people say that she eventually passed him on to her parents and the relationship was strained. But most of the articles I saw, including one that had like a quote from her son, was that no, she was a great mother and she, you know, she took care of him. Do you think it could have been? Um, it might have just been when she went out reporting. Maybe she left him with her parents. Okay. Well, and here's the other thing that kind of plays into the narrative: like you either need to be a mother or you need to be a working right. mother. If you're a stay-at-home mom, you should be ashamed for not working. If you're a working mom, you should be ashamed for not staying home with your kids. And right. so there's that those uh two roles that seem to be in conflict with each other they right? don't need to be yeah it's insane okay so later she covered a six-day war in the middle east and the co- the conflicts in both vietnam and Nic- nicaragua she always continued to tell the story of others those sufferers of history as she called it whose lives she believed were our direct responsibility she wrote vividly with fire and indignation trying to shake the larger world awake to the truth of mutuality, that what affects one affects us all. For beneath the battle statistics lay people. There was no other in Martha's world. There was no later, only us and only now. That was also from that article. I can't take credit for that. Jesus. (laughs) At the age of 81, the United States invasion of... At the age of 81, the United States invaded Panama, and she was there too. Oh, um, my it God. Was, I know. It was only when war came to Bosnia that she finally gave it a pass. Too old, she said. You have to be nimble for war. I, I mean, at 81, the yep. world would have given her a pass. Right. Seriously, like some of these women, they're so uh, mature, I'll say, when they're killing it. And I'm like, man, I'm going to turn 60 and be like, I'm too old for to do everything. anything. Yeah, exactly. Everyone just fuck off. I'm too old. <laughs> Martha's war correspondence was collected in a book called The Face of War. She focused a lot on um, foot soldiers and sh- civilians. She didn't write about the generals. You know, she kept it a lot more realistic. That is um, amazing. Yeah, she talks about that later, too. Well, and a lot it's... of war literature early on is about, it's it's about, okay, here's how the whole unit is moving. Yep. Here are the generals. Here's the strategy. It's not about the people, front lines, on yeah. the ground, and, she, and their It sounds like all of her writing was very much people oriented yeah well i mean she's hands-on yep she also had a peacetime journal um that was collected in what is known as the views from the ground yeah um 
Ruth sometimes took criticism. Not Ruth. For some reason in my notes, I called her Ruth and I had to go back and change it all to Martha. So I'm sorry that I said Ruth because her <laughs> name is Martha. I don't know where Ruth is coming from. You're just, you're still lingering on Ruth Cokerberg. Apparently. I have not been able to stop thinking about know, that woman. I know. That's, that's how it's going to be for this. I was going to say, for me. I posted on. <gasps> Drop my mic. <laughs> <laughs> we are on the ground, oh. people. This is real. But no, I posted on Twitter. I was like, you know, having a real hard time letting go of Ruth Coker Burks' story. Like other Herstory buffs. Who are the people that you have a hard time letting yeah. go? Martha is on the list. Carolyn is on that list yeah. for me. Oh, yeah. Because I didn't do her story. I still think about her. I know. It's crazy. Okay, so Martha sometimes took criticism from political conservatives who painted her as a left-leaning person whose writing was often didactic and sentimental. Others criticized her vivid journalism as being too stylistic and too much like fiction, and her terse fiction being stylistically too much like journalism, because everyone's a fucking asshole. Oh my god. Okay, well, you're too emotional about it. But you're not dry enough, but you're too dry, right, but you're it's too insane. much and you're too little. Like Her longevity and the compelling pull of her life story has made her a heroine to generations of young women correspondents. She has overrode such criticisms and her fight to get equal treatment and a place on the front lines with male colleagues. Um, she has also wrote, written as a romantic figure for her wartime relationship with um, Ernest Hemingway and her subsequent rejection of him. I almost wouldn't call that no, like a romantic. No, it's not romantic. I would call that like a woman who's in a bad relationship taking right? control cuz that is I mean, I mean that's so brave cuz that was an abusive relationship. Right. Okay. And okay. she fucking she's like, "No, fuck you." and left. Right. Good for exactly. her. All right, we're coming to the end. Okay. We're on we're on the last page. Martha worked until she couldn't work anymore. She went to war until her body couldn't take it anymore. And she wrote until blindness encroached. Ernest Hemingway. Oh, like Ernest Hemingway, she chose suicide when things grew too dire. Oh, no. She was 89 and had been given a terminal cancer diagnosis. Only recently, she had stopped swimming and snorkeling. Right up until the end, she was thinking about traveling. A trip to Egypt, perhaps to get a look at the pyramids. Quote, I want a life with people that is almost explosive in its excitement, she wrote. Fierce and hard and laughing and loud and gay as hell let loose. End quote. You know, that kind of reminds me of my grandmother. Yeah. Her passing was, I won't go into detail, but fishy. She was 95, was ready to peace out, and... I refuse to believe the universe just happened to align the way she did. I think she orchestrated some things. It definitely um, happens. But I mean, you're you're that old. Your body is failing you. You're just like, I can't do the things I love. I'm ready to be done. And I can't criticize anyone for that. Right. It's I sad, mean, at, at that age, it. it's not like she's 20 in the prime of her life really struggling with some mental health issues she's like no i've done what i came to do and uh i can't do what i want anymore so right. i'm I'm ready exactly. to be done and from the quote i just said i, I definitely think martha lived that life that she wanted absolutely and then um, some so she was 28 when she took on her first war and in her early lady 80s when she took on her last she covered virtually every major conflict of the 20th century can we're 28 right now. Yeah. Can you imagine going and covering nope. a war? Nope. 
I, I, it would break me emotionally. And then I would just, that would be it for me. Yeah. So what caused her to go blind um, was a failed cataract surgery. Oh, fuck. Um, Doctors. And the reason she had to stop writing was because she wrote on a little typewriter and she couldn't see the keys anymore. Oh, Martha. So, yeah, like I said, she was suffering from ovarian cancer. She had just found out that it had spread to her liver. And on February 15th, 1998, she committed suicide in London by swallowing a cyanide capsule. But hey, it's like, as terrible as it is, it's like go out on your own terms, I guess. There is, this does not apply to any, like, people who feel, who have suicidal ideation or tendencies or mental health issues. But there's got to be something comforting in her story because she was so old. She was dying. She was dying. She She wasn't like a perfectly healthy person. Um. And there's got to be something comforting about having control of that situation, especially because the shit she saw, she right. had no oh, control she had be, over. She was scarred. Her, and her, her relationship with Ernest Hemingway, she didn't, she exerted control. No, but she always lived in his shadow. Like, right. To be able to get out of something like that, but then always have it follow you around would yeah. be terrible. It's not like you can move to a different town and then forget. No, like, people are always no going to know you as, them. oh, you, oh, you were, you're Ernie, Ernest Hemingway's third wife. By the way, he did remarry after her to another journalist that he met while he was covering World War II. And then that journalist snapped and murdered him. No, he killed himself. Oh. How old was he? Do you um, know? I know this isn't his story. He, he, I don't know. He killed himself before her. Oh, okay. I know that. So legacy slash popular culture. Um, so for our history stamp collectors, uh, she was issued a stamp on April 22nd as part of the 20th century journalists. It honored five people and she was the only woman. Oh my God. And Ernest Hemingway wasn't in there. Fuck you, Ernest. (laughs) Um, in 2011, she was the subject of an hour long world media series, Extraordinary Women, which airs on the BBC. Um, when was that? 2011. If anyone can find that on YouTube, please email us the link at whiningaboutherstory at gmail.com. Um, there's also a film that I want to watch that uh, Martha was played by Nicole Kidman in a film called Hemingway and Gellhorn. Ooh. Um, and so actually, I failed to mention this. The book that I want to read that's about this and her relationship with Ernie Hemisway was written by the person. Ernie Hemisway? <laughs> <laughs> Ernest that's Hemingway. What, that's what Wine. I'm going to call him from Wine dyslexia. Ernie Hemisway <laughs> um, was a writer and he's kind of a son of a bitch. Right. So Paula McLean was the one that wrote the article I read. Um, she's the one that also wrote the book. It's called Love and Rune. And she actually wrote it in 2018. Oh my God. So yeah. So she wrote quite a few books, though a lot of people praise her more for her novellas than her full-length novels. So I talked about what Mad Pursuit and The Trouble I've Seen, which were her early ones, which I actually really want to read the one that's The Trouble I've Seen because that's the one about the Depression-era stories. And they re-released it in 2012. So I'm like, I kind of want to read that. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Um, Her other novels include something called A Stricken Field, The Heart of Another, and Liana. Sorry, I'm panting. My dog was crying and I had to go figure it out. 
Um, the Face of War is her collection of war journalisms. She also had another novella that she wrote. With, it was called Travels with Myself and Another, a memoir, which is another one I want to read. Ooh. Because she talks about, like, people she met in her travels. And she talks about one of them is she went traveling with Ernest Hemingway and called him an unwilling compare. Yeah, like an unwilling companion or something. She has dragged him along to her uh, career adventures. Right. The point is, she has, she has a bunch of different books and novellas out there. Well, she was a writer, I would right? hope so. <laughs> and she's also had quite a few books written about her, ranging from actually all within the 2000s. The earliest one I see here is 2003, and then ranging to 2018. Damn. So some some of the ones that stick out to me is Beautiful Exiles, uh, Love and Rune, which I mentioned already. Um, Hemingway on the China Front, his World War II spy mission with Martha Gellhorn, even though that was her assignment, not his. Oh, so he's getting top billing again. Huh? 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 I take issue. And then I like the I like this title. And this one was actually in 2000. So yeah, all within the 2000s. But this one's called Nothing Ever Happens to the Brave, the story of Martha Gellhorn. I really oh, want to read that one. That's yeah, intriguing. That, that is Martha Gellhorn. And Kara, I hope I did her justice for you. I bet her name is pronounced Kara, and we Probably. are just fucking it up on all sides. No, seriously. And I mean, we're always looking for recommendations. And like, we want to know the women who you really connect with. Whose stories do you want us to tell? Email us at whiningaboutherstory at gmail.com or slide into our DMs, sashay into our DMs. Or just call Twitter. us out on Twitter in general. It's at W-A-H underscore pod. Oh, you got it. <laughs> Emily's so proud because I said that, that wrong wine, every dyslexia. single time. Um, did you already say email us? Yep, I said email us. Uh, look us up on Facebook at Whining About Herstory. Uh, we post a lot of like articles and videos and things just about herstory in general. And then Instagram at WAHpod. Um, we also have a website where I blog, um, which is whiningaboutherstory.com. And I guess we just want to thank you for being here today. Yeah, thank you so much for listening. Um, Kelly, what are you thankful for this week? We'll make this quick. You always make me go first. Well, I will go first. So. I am. No, I'll go first. Okay, I'm go. I'm thankful for this good <laughs> wine and friendship. It's been kind of a weird week for me. So this is nice. I am. This is going to be like a humble brag situation, but I know I know nothing about like computers and programming and stuff. And I was put in a situation today where it was basically either I have to wait till Monday for something to get fixed or I need to figure it out. And I spent like the first half of my day watching like programming tutorials and all this stuff. And I was able to fix a problem myself, Justin which was so proud, super empowering. And I was like, I don't need nobody. And then like, <laughs> then there was a site that I couldn't fucking fix. I was like, damn. But I was really proud of myself. I was like, the, should be. this job. So I, I took on a new job shortly after we started this podcast mm -hmm. around that time. And growth is often painful and violent. And that is exactly where I have been for however many months we've been doing this podcast, basically. And so to have... one episode, so... Yeah, so to have these victories... <laughs> don't say it like that, it's so depressing. <laughs> but to have these victories and be able to, like, no, I can adapt and I can learn and, like, I'm going to fuck you up. You can do this. I'm going to fuck up so much. I have and I will continue to, but to have those victorious moments where right. it's like, 
I can fucking do this and I can learn and I can adapt. And that's really and clearly empowering. You have people behind you that are like, yes, you might fuck up, but you're doing your best and we know you can do this. Yeah, which is just means the world to me. And I love having you on my my team, Kelly. Of course. I you're love being able to do this podcast with, with you. Oh, yeah. After like 10 years of friendship, there's no getting out of this shit. <laughs> We're like barnacles like on bonded, each other. Yeah. yeah. I no, we have funny. a pack. We have a death tattoo pack. Like it's a whole thing. Yep. <laughs> We're, we're each other's uh, person. Funerary. Funerary cult, cult organizers. Yes. <laughs> yes. Join our funerary cult and like us all on social media. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening to Whining About Herstory. I'm Emily. I'm Kelly. And have an empowered day. Bye. Bye.